please keep your Bibles open in Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 1 to 8, the portion of Scripture that we read together. Well, as we've all been watching the news in the last few days and weeks, uh, you will know that our world and our country is in a state of chaos. The third wave of COVID-19 has wreaked havoc on our country as our hospitals are overloaded and many people are being turned away to die at home as there are no medical facilities to accommodate them. The vaccine program is rolling out incredibly slowly, not because of a lack of service delivery, but because people are being bombarded by fake news and conspiracy theories in social media and have become paralyzed by fear and superstition. And then we have the looting and, and the violent anarchy which has broken out across our land in the past week as the sinfulness and the depravity of our human hearts has, has been broadcast uh, across the television screens and channels for the whole world to see. And all of this begs the question, is the end of the world near? Well, according to the Mayan and, and Aztec calendars, the world was supposed to have ended on the 21st of December, 2012. And in actual fact, there have been over 240 predicted dates for the end of the world since the time that Jesus walked on the earth. And all of them have been wrong. So, so what does the Bible say about the end times, the times that we are living in and about the signs of the end times? Well, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this, Matthew 24 verse 4, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and, and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So while people uh, get all excited about the end times because of wars and rumors of wars and nation rising up against nation, what Jesus says about the end times should us concern us more than, than the wars and the plagues and the earthquakes and the famines. Jesus says that in the end times, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. And I think that the greatest evidence that we are living in the, the last days is the reality that false teaching abounds, lawlessness is increasing as we have seen even this past week and continue to see, and the love of many professing Christians is growing cold. Paul warns us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godly but denying its power. Do you see what Paul says? He warns Timothy that in the last days there will be times of difficulty as we see the evil in man's heart increasing and becoming more openly manifest. And he goes on to say that in the church, among professing Christians, there will be an outward form of of religiosity, an outward form of godliness, and yet there will be a denial of the power of the gospel. Now, taking what both Jesus and Paul had to say about the signs of the end of this world, doesn't it concern you that we are living in a day and age more so than Any of the time in history before us where the love of many is growing cold. And although there is a lot of hype around the appearance of godliness and and religiosity and spirituality in our culture, we see that the power of the gospel, the salvation of Jesus Christ alone, through faith in Him alone, this is being denied We've become spiritually lukewarm in our religious comfort zones, not realizing the massive spiritual dilemma that we are facing. What does all of this have to do with our parable this morning? And I would propose that it has everything to do with it, because the parable that we're going to be looking at in Luke chapter 18 comes immediately after the Pharisees and the disciples were wanting to know when the end of the world would come. And although Jesus does give them some information in Luke chapter 17, he moves on immediately to teach them about prayer. One commentator says that the keys to understanding this parable are hanging at the front door because we are told right up front why Jesus told this parable and what he wants us to learn from it. Look at verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so we are told right up front, right from the beginning, that the purpose of this parable is to teach us that we ought always to pray. We are to persist in prayer and not lose heart, particularly in the light that we are living in the last days and Jesus could come at any moment. But as much as the key to the parable uh, is at the front door in the first verse, it is equally found at the back door in the last verse, verse 8. Nevertheless, says Jesus, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus says to his disciples that that he's going to teach them about prayer, about persisting in prayer, about our confidence in approaching God in prayer, and about the power of prayer. But he is concerned. Jesus is concerned that when he returns at the end of the ages, when he comes back to earth to bring about the end of this age, to bring an end to this fallen, broken, corrupt world, 
Will he find people of faith on the earth? What a sobering question. Coming to us from God himself. If Jesus were to come and bring an end to the world today, would he find faith on the earth? Would he find faith in Johannesburg? Would he find faith at Honeyridge Baptist Church? Would he find faith in your home and mine? Now don't answer that question just yet. Because how do we know if Jesus would find faith? What does Jesus consider to be the sign of true faith? We would maybe hope that Jesus would return on a Sunday morning. After all, after COVID is gone at least, because then he would find you and me in church. But no, church attendance is not the measure of true faith. Well, what about good, good works? Don't you hope that, that Jesus will come on Mandela Day while you are busy doing your 67 minutes of good works? Or he'll come on a Friday evening while you're busy serving him in the youth ministry? No. Good works and acts of service are not the measure of true faith either. Well, what is it then? What, according to Jesus, is the evidence of true faith in the world? Well, the answer is this. Would he find you and me persistent in prayer? Because prayer, according to Jesus, is the true test of our faith. What would he find in your life and in mine? What would he find before the sun rises in the morning? What would he find throughout the day? What would he find before you go to bed at night if he came looking for a people of prayer? You see, there is no such thing as a prayerless faith. That's the point that Jesus is making here. True faith in God will be evident in our prayer life. And so if you want an honest biblical-based conversation starter to, to get everyone in your workplace talking, to get everyone in your school classroom talking, forget the turmoil in the Middle East and the most recent obsessions with Israel. Forget about COVID-19 and, and all the conspiracy theories around the mark of the beast and the vaccine rollout. Forget even about the looting and the anarchy which is reigning across our country. Why not go to work and tell people, that according to the Bible, the end of the world is imminent because the love of many Christians has grown cold. We have a form of godliness, but we deny the power of the gospel, and our prayer meetings are practically empty. This parable of Jesus could not be more aptly timed for any generation in church history than it is for ours today because it is very sad, but we have to admit that by and large, we are a prayerless generation. One commentator sums the problem up like this. Prayer is difficult for us in the modern world. Our civilization is, is largely secular and materialistic in its outlook. It screams at us daily that all that is real and, and certainly all that matters is what we can see and handle and taste and touch. Reality consists of the physical world around us. The material world is the only world that counts. 
Only with great difficulty can professing Christians rise above the spirit of our age and affirm with the apostles that the things which are seen are are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Instead, we are sorely tempted to pour all our time and our energy into our houses and automobiles and clothes and food and and various recreations and entertainments by which we amuse ourselves. We lay up treasures on earth rather than heaven because, frankly, we see and enjoy earthly treasures but can scarcely believe that heavenly treasure exists. Little thought is given to the soul and the eternal. We live like practical atheists Monday to Saturday, even if we are in church on Sunday. And yet, he says, Jesus assumes that his disciples will be devoted to prayer. End quote. So if prayerless Christianity is the problem of our age, then this parable of Jesus could not be more important, more timeous for us to consider today. And then we'll consider another parable on the same topic of prayer next week. Let's turn then to Luke 18 and see what Jesus is trying to teach us from this passage. And there are simply just two lessons about prayer from this parable. The first one is about us and our attitude to prayer. And then the, the other is about God and his attitude to prayer. And then we're going to expand on this topic of prayer next week. So let's start with us. In the first place, we see from the parable that we are to be persistent in prayer. This really is the main point of Jesus' parable, and he states it up front. He told us this parable to teach us, to teach his disciples, that we should always be praying and should not lose heart. In other words, that we should persist in prayer and not become discouraged. Now, Jesus teaches us about what he means in in persistent praying by telling us the story of a widow, a widow in a certain city who had been sinned against in some way and she needed justice to be done. We aren't told what had been done to her or by whom, but the important thing is that she was effectively helpless. She was a widow. She did not have a a husband to fight her cause for her, to defend her, to protect her interests. She, she does not have the finances to employ a, a lawyer to defend her case for her. And so she turns to the judge or the civil magistrate of the town. This was a position ordained by God, and she looks to him to provide her with the justice, with the restitution that she needed. But as often as we see in the newspapers today, both here and and around the world, often judges are corrupt people. We are specifically told that this judge did not fear God, neither did he respect man. In other words, he was only interested in himself and he only looked after his own interests. He was not a God-fearing man, which meant that he he was not interested in upholding God's principles of of justice and righteousness in society. And he did not respect people, 
which meant that he wasn't interested in upholding the, the civil rights and the equality of the people in his court. The fact that such a man became a judge is a matter of injustice in and of itself. But our focus is on the widow, on what she did. And we are told in verse 3 that she kept on coming to him. She did not just come to him once and, and then give up. No, she recognized that unless she got help from the judge, she was destitute and had no hope. And so what did she do? She just kept on coming again and again and again. Notice, too, the, the nature of her request. Give me justice against my adversary. This was not a, a selfish plea for personal gain at the expense of others. This was, was not a self-centered plea for personal blessing in the face of plenty. No, this was a cry for justice, for the judge to do what was right in the face of suffering and injustice. And so already we can learn some important spiritual lessons from, from this woman's attitude she recognized her, her dependence upon the judge to, to act on her behalf. She kept on coming to him again and again, and, and she pleaded with him for justice against her enemy. And so that translates then directly into the, the spiritual realm of prayer and teaches us three lessons about praying. Number one, we are to recognize that we are spiritual widows in the sense that we are totally dependent upon the judge of the world to do what is right for us. Prayer at its very core is coming before God in humility, acknowledging that, that what we are asking of him are things that we cannot do for ourselves. We, we cannot accomplish them in our own strength. It recognizes that unless God is the one who acts for us on our behalf against our adversaries, that we are helpless and hopeless to do it ourselves. And yet, how different this seems to be to so much of what we see regarding so-called prayer in much of the popular Christianity scene of today. As we, we look at some of the top-selling books in the bookshop, as we look at so much of what we would find on the so-called Christian TV channels, where we are taught that God answers the prayers of those who claim things from God. You name it, and you claim it, and God will give it to you. People who demand blessing from God as a right and who almost arrogantly then presume on God to act for their personal benefit, gain, and promotion. No, the lesson of the widow is one of humble, dependent persistence. Humble dependence, a, a pleading for justice which, which glorifies God, not simply for blessing which is meant to enrich us in our self-centeredness. Secondly, we are meant to recognize that persistent prayer is rewarded prayer. Just as the, the widow kept on coming again and again to the judge, so too we as Christians are meant to persevere in prayer. We ought always to pray and not lose heart. We see this in verse 1. 
I think there could be no greater need in our day and age of, of instant everything than for us as Christians to learn the discipline of patient persistence in prayer. I mean, think about this as parents. How do we know what things are really important to our children? Well, we soon, uh, we, we soon learn that, that the desires that we give into quickly tend to most often be the things that are most short-lived in their lives. Their friend gets something shiny and new, and suddenly they come home and they say, Dad, I've always wanted that thing. And so you give in after one request, and it is no sooner come, and it's been left on the shelf or under the bed, and it's forgotten. But experience has taught us as parents that if we hold out for a season with our kids, some of their desires disappear after a week or two, and they are replaced by new ones. But other requests keep coming back. Week after week, month after month, sometimes year after year. And usually those desires are the genuine ones, the important ones, which when we then give those to our children are most appreciated and bear fruit for many years. Well, the same thing is true of prayer. Jesus is teaching us to persist in prayer because only the desires which have true value are important and worth persisting in. And so our persistence in prayer is a measure of how important something is to us, which in turn reveals the state of our hearts. If you only pray for an unsaved friend or family member once or twice, or perhaps once a month or once a year, it reveals that it is obviously not very important to you. If you only pray for God's will to be done in your life, for him to... to to give you a burden and a calling to be useful in his kingdom, and you pray that once a year, perhaps, a kind of a, an annual dedication of your life to the Lord. Perhaps you, you pray those kind of prayers when, when your security and your comforts are shaken. There's a kind of a, a recommittal, Lord, Lord, let me serve you with the rest of my life, and then you forget about it. It reveals that God's glory and, and serving him in his kingdom is not really a priority for you. It's more of a kind of a spiritual hobby horse that you visit every now and then. No, says Jesus. If something is really important to you, you will persist in praying for it. You will not give up. But as the widow did, you will keep on coming to God again and again until he answers you. You will not accept God's silence on the matter. You will keep on coming because it is important and Jesus says that persistence in prayer is rewarded prayer. But thirdly, we are meant to learn that true prayer is always centered on the glory of God. Now, you might think that I'm, I'm stretching this point from the text because all we see is a widow coming to the judge to pass a ruling against her enemy. But the word she uses is for him to execute justice. And this is a word which shares the, the same root as the character of God, the, the root word justification, which means to be declared righteous in God's sight. Listen to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 16. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. There's that same root word. 
This woman is coming to the judge for him to execute justice, for him to do what is righteous. And there is no greater motive in prayer than for us to desire for God's justice to be done, for God's righteousness to be displayed, for that which is righteous in God's sight to be accomplished. For in that, God is glorified. Her praying was was not a prayer for revenge against her enemy or for personal gain for herself at the expense of others. No, her prayer to the judge was for him to do what was right. And so this again challenges so much of our motives in praying, doesn't it? Praying which is all too often consumed with, with my personal benefit. Praying which is me-centered for the sake of making my life better and, and more comfortable and, and more prosperous. Instead of praying which is focused on God's glory, on Him doing what is right and, and just and good in our lives and in the lives of others. Notice too what she requests here. She says, give me justice against my adversary. Now, who is our adversary? Is it really your mother-in-law or that unpleasant boss or that person in the parking lot who spreads rumors about you? No, according to the Bible, our adversary is the enemy of our souls, the devil. Listen to 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. How much of our praying is truly focused against the adversary of our souls? Praying which is spiritually focused against the spiritual enemy of pride and and lust and greed and anger and laziness and injustice? How much is our praying to God pleading that He would exact justice against the devil and against His influence over this world? Exact justice against the sinful desires of our hearts so that He will be glorified in the victory of us becoming more and more like Jesus in every aspect of our lives. So that then is the first lesson which Jesus teaches us regarding our attitude to prayer. It is that we ought to always pray, to persist in prayer as we come humbly in dependence on God to do what God himself can do for us and no one else. Repeatedly praying that God would be glorified in our lives by doing what is right and just as we seek the victory over the enemy of our souls. But the second thing Jesus wants to teach us in this parable has to do with God's attitude to prayer. And so in the second place, we see that God takes great delight in prayer. Now, Jesus uses a, a very interesting and a very bold tactic to explain to us what God's heart is towards prayer and the praying of his children. 
In the first point, Jesus is teaching us that we must be like the widow in the story. She is the role model to us in our praying. But the second point Jesus makes is not by way of comparison, but by way of contrast. The contrast Jesus is setting up is the contrast between the corrupt, unjust human judge and the perfect, righteous judge who is God. And so we learn in this what God is like, not by comparing him to the judge in the story, but by contrasting him to the judge in the story. This is one of those how much more occasions in the Bible where Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God not give us all good things? Or in Romans where Paul says effectively the same thing. If God did not spare his own son, but, but gave him up for us all, how much more will he not also give us every good thing? So that's what Jesus is doing here. He paints a picture of a totally ungodly human judge, a man who does not fear God, a man who has no respect for people. And yet, despite this man's wickedness and self-serving attitude, he nevertheless still does the right thing in the end because of the woman's persistence in coming to him. So in other words, if a bad man does the right thing because of the woman's persistence in pleading with him for justice, how much more will God not do what is right for his children who come to him in prayer? We see this in verse 6 and 7. The Lord said, hear what the, unri- the unrighteous judge says. In other words, look, even the unrighteous judge did what was right in the end. Now, if the wicked judge of this world did the right thing in the end, how much more, verse 7, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Jesus is wanting to establish this massive contrast between the attitude and the actions of the unrighteous judge who, even though he is evil, nevertheless does what is right with the attitudes and the actions of God, who is the perfect, righteous judge of the world. How much more will God not be ready to speedily answer the prayers of his elect? the ones for whom he has given up his own son to death, how much more will he not give justice to them? How much more will he not be eager to hear them? How much more will he not act speedily and and swiftly to bring about justice? How much more? How much more? We have a God who takes great pleasure and delight in our prayers who waits eagerly to hear and to respond, who is swift to act on behalf of his children, who come to him humbly, in persistent dependence, seeking God's will for their lives, seeking God's glory to be manifest through justice, to see God glorified in the victory of his children over sin and Satan. 
as a church this past week. I hope you have been blessed as we have made use of Matthew Henry's guide to praying for our country and our government officials. What a, a rich blessing of prayers are contained in the pages of Scripture that, that Matthew Henry has presented so faithfully for us to use as a pattern for our praying. Well, listen again to Matthew Henry, this 17th century Protestant minister, as he highlights nine contrasts between the widow and the judge and Christian, the Christian and God. Number one, he says, she was a stranger to the judge, whereas we are God's chosen people. She was alone in her pleading, but God's praying people are many. The judge kept her at a distance, but God calls us to himself and, and teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father. She came to an unjust judge, but we come to a righteous father. She approached the judge on her own account, but Christians come to God on the basis of Jesus, and we plead God's cause back to himself. She had no friend to speak for her, but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. She had no encouragement from the judge, but we have a God that promises that he will listen to our prayers. She could only go to the judge at certain times, but we can cry out night and day to the Lord. She knew that her nagging would provoke the judge to act, but we know that the prayers of the upright are a delight to God. In other words, what a great encouragement this is to us today to come to God in prayer. A God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine, a God of the impossible, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, a, a God who is the father of his chosen children, a, a father who delights in our prayers, who is glorified in answering the prayers of his children. The question which must jump out at us then is this, in the light of all that Jesus has taught us, why do we not pray more? Why are the church prayer meetings the most poorly attended meetings of the church? Why is our own prayer life so often sporadic and our prayer time so short? Why do we give up so quickly in praying for the things which are eternally important? I think Jesus gives us a clue in his final question. At the end of the parable, nevertheless, verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? See, faithless prayer is religious superstition, and prayerless faith is religious hypocrisy. Faithless prayer, that is praying which does not believe that God exists and that he is ready and able to answer our prayer, that's simply religious superstition. Mumbling some words into the sky and, and hoping that something will come of it. But similarly, prayerless faith, a faith which claims to believe in God, but never talks to him, never depends upon him, never brings our request to him, that is religious hypocrisy. 
No, true faith in God is manifest, it's revealed, it's displayed in our attitude to prayer. How much we believe God to be who he says he is will be seen in the way that we pray. If God is our religious genie in a bottle, then our praying will be all about bringing to God our three wishes for the day. If God is our religious personal life coach, then our praying will all be about asking God for that which makes us feel better. If God is our religious fairy godmother, then our praying will all be about God acting on behalf of our comforts and earthly temporal passions of the flesh. But it's only when we see ourselves as we truly are, spiritual widows, spiritually depraved and needy, empty of, of anything of value, without any power of our own, to make any significant difference in our lives. It's only when we see ourselves as we are, and then God as our loving, faithful, heavenly Father, all-powerful, the, the righteous judge of the earth, who is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, as John Piper says so eloquently. It's only then that our praying will reflect the heart of true faith in this almighty God. So let me read to you the words of Jesus to the lukewarm church in Laodicea, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you would either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, lukewarm and, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God is standing at the door of the Honey Ridge Baptist Church this morning. And he's knocking. He's knocking. The question is, is he welcomed among us? Is he finding this morning a people of true faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Is he finding repentant hearts? Is he finding persistent prayer? A people seeking his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Is he finding a people passionate to buy God's gold refined by fire? A people desiring nothing more than to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we might be his hands and his feet and his mouthpiece and his light to this very dark world. By his prophetic word, and the working of his Holy Spirit among us, the Son of Man is among us today. Has he found faith in the Honey Ridge Baptist Church? 
May God be pleased to find us to be a people who are committed and persistent in prayer. And where we are not, let us be zealous and repent so that we too may conquer. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize afresh today as we look at the world around us this past week, as we see the sinfulness of human hearts on public display, as we've seen it this week. Lord, we thank you that your word has turned the spotlight, perhaps away from all that evil which is so blatant out there, and it's turned the spotlight onto our hearts to reveal that perhaps we are not as righteous as we thought we were. We are not as without blame as we thought we were. For we are not a people who is persistent in prayer. We ask this morning that you would forgive us individually as heads of our homes, as those who lead our families, be that fathers or mothers, single moms, grandparents, We have not been people of prayer. As businessmen in the workplace, we have not been people of prayer. As citizens in our country, we have not been a people of prayer. And when we have prayed, it's been so self-centered for the fickle things of this world and not focused on the glory of God and, and your holiness and your justice being displayed in our city and in our world. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to return to you in true repentance, that we would recognize ourselves today as this spiritual widow who is crying out to the righteous judge of the world to execute justice. Lord, we need that in this day and age more than anything else. But in your wrath and in your justice, we cry out that you would remember mercy. Thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. For if you did, Where would we be today? We would be on the television. We would be those in the streets looting, destroying property and killing others. But for the grace of God, there go I. And so we want to thank you today for your grace to us. Help us, Lord, to have a deep love and concern for our city and for those who are so desperately lost in it that we cry out to you today to restrain the hand of the evil one in our midst, that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ might shine brightly. O Lord, we ask that you would hear our prayers, not for our name's sake, but for your name, O God, that you would be glorified, that this whole country would look to you and acknowledge you as the righteous judge, the one who has authority over all things. And that we would humbly bow the knee and submit our lives and our futures into your almighty hands. Lord, help us, we pray, to be a people persistent in praying every day for that which is ultimately important. The salvation of our own souls, the salvation of those around us, and the proclamation of the glory of God and the kingdom of God to this world so that you might be rightfully worshipped. Help us, we pray. We are weak. Help us in our weakness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.